Well, good morning, everybody. We have been working our way through, uh, week by week, the greatest sermon ever preached. And because the sermon was given by Jesus on a mountain, it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's not long. Uh, you can read the entire Sermon on the Mount aloud in less than 30 minutes. It's about the same length as a standard Sunday morning sermon, but there's nothing standard about this one. Uh, I was thinking about this, that uh, every year uh, at this time, the President of the United States is uh, asked to give a State of the Union address, and uh, the Sermon on the Mount could be considered Jesus' State of the Universe address. What ultimately matters? What is ultimately real? What is ultimately good? This Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've been taking our time with this. We started in the fall, and last Sunday we completed chapter 5. Congratulations, everybody. We are one-third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, well done. We finished an entire chapter of the Bible, and I encourage you to go back and read chapter 5 again to kind of review. Um, but today we turn the page... And we begin chapter 6. And I want to give you kind of a preview of what's going to happen in chapter 6 because it's, it's a great chapter. I like to think of chapter 6 as the chapter between chapters 5 and 7. <laughs> it is the center of the sermon. And in the center of the center, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, in the center of the center is Jesus teaching about prayer. These phenomenal words, this may be the most famous part of the most, most famous sermon. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Inside the greatest sermon ever given is the greatest prayer ever prayed. And we're going to get to that in just a few weeks. And we're going to spend six weeks, one line each week, on the six Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday. The six weeks leading up to Easter Sunday... Uh, is a season referred to as Lent. And Lent traditionally is a season of prayer and fasting and repentance and reflection. And I'm going to encourage you to lean into the season of Lent this year. And we'll be studying the Sermon on the Mount. And we're producing a curriculum for groups on the Sermon on the Mount for you and your friends to use over the course of Lent. And we shot the videos last Saturday. And the project's a little bit different than other videos we've shot because we, we, we filmed these uh, videos in front of a studio audience. Uh, we did Q&A to make it a little more interactive, and I think it's going to be a very nice uh, experience to include your group as a part of. And so we're currently looking for hosts for these Lenten groups. Anybody can host. Uh, the commitment is six weeks long. You open up your home to a group of people between six and 12 people. You show the 10-minute teaching video. You lead a discussion using the questions that we will provide. And you serve some dessert. And that's it. Video, discussion, dessert. Video, discussion, 
deserve. Wash, rinse, repeat. And we'll do that for six uh, weeks. And it's, it seems pretty simple, and it's only six weeks long. But this is really a great way. Short-term groups are a great way to get to know some other people and a really great way to apply some of the teaching that we've been working through together. So if you're willing to host a group or want to know more about hosting a group, you can make your way to the current focus area. That's that area in the hall by the glowing wall. There's somebody there this morning after this service that can tell you more about what it would take to host a group in your home. Also on the website and on the app, there's an area on the Lord's Prayer, and there's a little button that says host a group and one that says join a group. Host a group or join a group, and we're looking for people today who will host a group over Lent. That's all starting in a few weeks. Groups start March 1st. March 1st, a few weeks away. But today, we begin a look at chapter 6. And chapter 6 begins with Jesus saying, these words that were read earlier, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What is Jesus concerned about here? Jesus wants people, of course, to do good acts, to do righteous acts. That's not the problem. The problem is doing good and righteous acts to be seen by others, to feed our own egos, to impress other people. And you get the idea that the people that Jesus is referring to here may be more interested in looking good than in actually being good. And so the title of this morning's sermon is Doing Right Wrongly. Doing Right Wrongly. This is kind of a theme of the first part of chapter 6. He illustrates the point by talking about three religious practices, giving, praying, and fasting. It is right to give. It is right to pray. It is right to fast. But you can do these right things wrongly out of wrong motives, for wrong purposes. It's possible to do right wrongly. And to really understand what's going on here, really to understand the New Testament, you have to understand a group in Jesus' day called the Pharisees. A lot of you know this. Uh, you remember that, the, that, that Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. Kind of a surprise at first glance, because the Pharisees were Bible-studying, worship-attending, law-abiding, religious people. And they became the religious leaders in a religious nation. And so they had risen uh, to a place of power. They were very influential, very powerful, and very intimidating. If you crossed the Pharisees, you were in big trouble. The Pharisees and the Sadducees together made up the Sanhedrin, which was really kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. Very powerful group. And Jesus, in his teaching, lifts up the Pharisees as the shining example of what not to do. He lifts up the Pharisees as an example of what righteousness does not look like. Jesus had to be very brave to do this. He is taking on the power of his day. I want you to see what uh, Jesus says about this in another place in Matthew's gospel, later in, in chapter 23. Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. 
They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus says, do what the Pharisees say, just don't do what they do. What they say is right. They say a lot of good things. Follow what they say. Just don't do what they do because they get a lot of things wrong. A little background. Some of you may remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 says to bind God's word to your forehead and to your arms. And then Numbers 15 says to make tassels for your garments, the hang for your garments, to remind you of the commandments. And these key scriptures were placed inside uh, phylacteries or tefillin. Uh, I think we've got a picture of a modern day one here. And inside this little cube are several texts uh, of the Torah, of the law of Moses, written on little pieces of parchment, little pieces of paper, and stuck inside these little teeny boxes. And then these boxes are strapped to your forehead to symbolize that God's law should be on the forefront of our minds. And then notice he's got a second box on his arm, and it kind of points to the heart and and wraps around out the hands. And the idea that the Word of God, planted in the heart, works its way out into the work of our hands. Powerful imagery here. And they were to make tassels. The tassels look like this with a blue cord running through it. And these tassels were to remind people of God's commandments, that God's word goes wherever you do. Observant Jews today still follow these practices with the, the boxes, the tefillin, and the straps, and even the tassels to remind themselves of God's law and to inspire awe and reverence for God in times of prayer. What, what, do, you, what do you think of these practices? I love the rich symbolism of a lot of these Old Testament practices. I love their heart to obey everything that God says. God said, put the law on your foreheads. I might have been tempted to read that metaphorically, like, you know, when I say something in the tip of my tongue or the forefront of my mind, but they read it literally. We want to do everything that God says we should do, and that is a really good thing. But over time, some of the Pharisees used some of these practices to show off. And that's what Jesus said here. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. You think you're spiritual? Look at me. The box on my head is bigger than the box on your head. You think you've got tassels? Check out these tassels. When I walk into the synagogue, everyone's looking at my tassels. There goes a super spiritual guy. And of course, there's a lot of irony in this. Uh, D.A. Carson writes about this. He says, uh, what began as spiritual self-discipline was prostituted into an occasion for pompous self-righteousness. What was once a sign of humiliation became a sign of self-righteous display. 
Now, before we judge the Pharisees too harshly, can we admit that we know what it's like to sometimes feel self-righteous? Can we admit that we sometimes play to the crowd? And the word that Jesus uses of them, he uses the word hypocrites. And in that day, the word hypocrite was not a negative term. It was not a pejorative. It simply meant someone who was a stage actor, uh, someone who lived one life on the stage that was different than the life they played in private life. So Jesus invokes the language of theater to address the human tendency to turn our religion, to turn our acts of goodness into a stage, into an act. You know, sometimes somebody will say to me, I don't go to church. I wouldn't go there because the church is full of hypocrites. And I always want to say, oh, come on, we've got room for one more. (laughs) Hypocrisy is a religious problem that we need to address, but it's not only a religious problem. It is a human problem. Every human being, religious or not, has some part of their lives that they live as if on a stage. It starts out innocently enough. We want to put on our best face. But after a while, it's not really our face at all. It is a mask. And we become performers and actors. And the audience becomes anyone whose affirmation we crave. And it is exhausting. We have many audiences. And audiences are fickle. And here's the big idea I want us to see today. Your audience determines your actions. Your audience determines your actions. Who is your audience? Whose applause and affirmation do you crave? We all crave affirmation. This is why social media can be so addictive because it is like a social rewards dispenser. We count how many likes we get and each one provides a little shot of dopamine into our system. YouTube currently has 13,000 tutorials on how to take a perfect selfie. 13,000 tutorials on how to take a picture of yourself. You want to guess how many tutorials there are about how to die to your imperfect selfie? Zero. The alternative to approval addiction is simply to live before an audience of one. Soren Kierkegaard, the uh, Danish philosopher of the 1800s, wrote a lot about this imagery of life as a theater, and God is the audience. God is the only audience. Uh, We were wired to seek approval. We can't help ourselves. You, You look at a little baby and watch when they're loved and when they're noticed and when they're delighted in, how that baby just lights up and we know that this is a good thing. The question isn't, will I seek approval? The question is, where will I seek it? The truth is, I have an infinite need for approval. We all do. And God has an infinite supply, and only God does. Jesus says, now if you want to live in the kingdom of God, if you want to be with God and live the good life, you enter into the kingdom and you live before God. You please God. You serve God. You find your security in God. You rest in God. You find your identity 
in God's love. I live for God's approval alone. In fact, you actually can't live for both human approval and God's approval. In many cases, you'll be forced to choose. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, Am I now trying to win the approval of both human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'd be pretending. I'd be performing. I'd be guessing and calculating. Trying to please people can make us uncertain, hesitant, and fearful. Look at what John writes. He says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for what? For fear. They, they would not acknowledge their faith in Jesus because of fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. The fear of the crowd, the fear of the audience held them back. Some of you would like to give your life to Jesus, but you haven't because of fear of your audience. Some of you, maybe fear holds you back from telling other people about Jesus. Maybe your audience holds you back from going deeper in your faith because you're worried your audience uh, will think that you're a fanatic and you want to be thought of as a reasonable person. The idea of serving an audience of one affects everything. It's actually remarkably freeing. It means you don't need to care about what everybody else thinks. You don't care about what's in fashion. You choose not to care. And it doesn't mean that I don't care about you. It means I serve an audience of one, and you are not that one. God has not called you to seek universal approval. To live in the kingdom, at least in part, means to die to that need. To die to that need for the approval of the audience. Now, Jesus was speaking here to a religious culture, and so he addressed certain religious activities that in that day brought public admiration. Giving, praying, and fasting. But in a secular culture, it might be different activities and different accomplishments. The first illustration that Jesus uses... I think works for both secular and Christian. He applies the principle that he's been teaching about to the universally admired activity of charitable giving. You heard it was read earlier. So uh, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Let's, let's stop there. Notice Jesus says, when you give, not if you give. Jesus assumes that his hearers are giving. In, in that culture, it would have been standard practice uh, for people to give 10% of all, their, all they receive back to the Lord's work. So when Jesus talks about giving to the needy, he most assuredly is talking about almsgiving, which was above and beyond that 10%. They would have understood 10% back to God as a tithe and then almsgiving to support the needy uh, in that culture. Uh, so there's a lot to affirm here. The people are being very generous. Jesus is not concerned about their generosity. He's concerned about something else. 
He says, when you give, do not announce it with trumpets. And probably what he's referring here to is the trumpet that was blown to call people to worship, to call them out of the streets into the synagogues. And it's possible that what he means by this is people would time their giving into the alms box. They'd wait for the trumpets to blow when everyone would look over to the synagogue. And then once everybody was looking, that's when they put in their gift. They, they, they calculated the timing of the trumpet in order to make their gift. And Jesus says they have received their reward in full. Dallas Willard puts it like this. When, when God sees that their intention is to get the attention of other people and to be honored by people, God courteously stands aside and allows them to get exactly what they want. No more reward is due. I feel the same uh, form of this every time I get coffee at Starbucks because there is a tip jar on the counter and I'm, I'm going to give a tip. I, I want to give a tip. I, I plan to give a tip. And I take my tip out, and I'm going to put it in the tip jar, but the barista turns around to make the coffee. And everybody is busy, and no one is looking in my direction. Do I put the tip in the jar while their backs are turned, or do I wait until someone's glancing in my direction when I know I'm going to be seen? What would you do? Anybody ever face this? You'd wait? <laughs> Thanks for your honesty. I don't know what to do, so I hesitate, and I take that tip, and I put it in my pocket. No, no, I don't do that. <laughs> I, put, I put the tip in the jar when she turns in my direction. I, I, I don't think all giving needs to be secret giving. The Bible has examples where God publicly commends uh, people who, uh, for their giving, Angie and I have learned to be more generous because of the stories of people who've given generously and creatively, and those stories inspire other forms of giving. Uh, so I don't think it all needs to be secret. Don't post a YouTube video every time you give. But there are appropriate times for modeling, recognizing, and affirming generosity. But for those of you who have a particular struggle with people-pleasing, if you are prone to approval addiction, then you may want to try the spiritual practice of secrecy to, to balance this, to free yourself from your people-pleasing tendency. You do something nice for someone, and you don't let them know. Do something nice for someone you don't even like, and don't let them know. That's even better. Write an, anon an anonymous note of encouragement. Buy a gift card to a coffee shop and give it anonymously to a pastor. <laughs> Make sure you put enough on the card to cover the tip. <laughs> do something nice for someone. Do, do a favor without any recognition coming your way and you test to see if what Jesus said is really true. Can I survive without public recognition? Do I feel the freedom that comes from that? Do I feel a strength that comes from that? That's life in the kingdom. In 1936, the Queen Mary was launched. And this, for 40 years, the Queen Mary sailed the seas. At the end of its run, they docked uh, this ship at Long Beach, California, 
and turned this old ship into a fine hotel. Maybe some of you have been there. They planned to get it all cleaned up and all spruced up for her new purpose. And they planned to remove those smokestacks that you see there and uh, get them all cleaned up and repaint them. But when they went to move the smokestacks, uh, the smokestacks just collapsed and crumbled. All the steel on the inside had, had rotted away and the smokestacks were literally being held together by paint. No matter how good something looks on the outside, if the inside has rotted away, there's trouble coming. Whenever you put appearance over substance, you're on the path of destruction. So what if we focus not on external appearances, but on the goodness of our hearts? What if we worried less about what people thought and instead sought to serve an audience of one? What if we lived to please God alone who sees all and knows all? What if we lived as if God was the only one that knew about our giving and our serving and our praying? What if our goal wasn't to look good, but to be good? May it be so. Let's pray. God, thank you for your great love for us. I pray for everybody right now who has ever felt isolated, rejected, or false. Help us to be a place where we swim in God's love. Give us the strength to die to our addiction to human approval and to instead live before an audience of one. This we pray in the life-giving name of freedom, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.